Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the Project Purple studio. I've got a special guest with us today on the podcast, all the way from Burlington, Ontario, right outside of Toronto, Sandy Robus. Sandy, how are you today? I'm terrific, Dino. Thanks for asking. How are you? Doing great, doing great. So, uh, you know, we're recording this a couple weeks before this will air. So the the world is in a very strange place right now. But uh, this actually is what we do here with the podcast, uh, really something that I really enjoy a lot. And, you know, the last week and a half, we've been really focused on the COVID-19 crisis, uh, talking to many doctors and scientists. But this actually uh, brings a little bit of normalcy back to what I do on the podcast and interviewing our survivors and the survivor group. And you are a pancreatic cancer survivor. Full disclosure for our audience listening at home, you reached out to us. You're a fan of our podcast as we were talking before we hit the record button here. You've listened to one of the recent episodes and a couple of others and you had reached out to us all the way from Canada, which is awesome. I, I just love you know, where this podcast has gone and, and having this idea of to really help raise awareness. This is what this podcast was about is let's raise as much awareness as we can. Let's use a different medium. There's plenty of stuff in print. There's stuff on video, but uh, podcasting was something that I really enjoyed as I traveled around the country, raising awareness for Project Purple, but listening to various podcasts years ago. And I just said, hey, th- this is just a great way to for us to raise awareness. And to see where this is gone, Sandy, was pretty wild. We've had guests from Australia. We've got some guests from the UK coming up. We've got more guests from Australia. And now you are technically, let me, let me just do quick math here. You are our first... Canadian from Canada on Yay! the Project Purple podcast. So go Canada. <coughs> so, and I do love that global perspective, you know, so I enjoy them. Yeah, I, I think it's it's pretty special, you know, in this day and age, you know, especially as I mentioned, as I opened the show, you know, with everything that's going on, you know, but this disease, you know, pancreatic cancer doesn't stop. Right, even though we have this this massive worldwide crisis, and I would probably back up and not to, you know, I'm not trying to put light on what's happening in the world today, um, you know, with the COVID nineteen crisis. But pancreatic cancer has been an epidemic for a long, long time, and um, I really do hope that we do not lose sight of that because cancer does not stop with all these crises. Even in 2008, when the stock market here in the United States was crashing, that didn't say. To cancer, hey, like you've got to you've got to stop infecting patients, or you know the d- disease progression just stops because of all these other things going on in the world. And so, I think our message is more important today than it ever was um, because patients are still going to get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and raising awareness is super critical more than any time in our history you know, of, of doing Project Purple or, or being in a business for Project Purple for our patient community. So uh, this is something that's really, really critical. So thank you for being on our podcast. So what we always do traditionally with our guests is we always give them an opportunity to share their story with our audience. And as I always tell our guests, Sandy, you can go as far back as you'd like. You can say <laughs> as high level. I know before we hit the record button, you said, Hey, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a talker. And I said, that's okay, Sandy. I've done this before. I'll really, <laughs> and I'll keep you on task. So with that, uh, the mic is yours. You can share your background story with our audience. Thanks, Dino. Yeah. As you said, uh, I've been in sales in the information technology industry for probably about 35 years now, and uh, so I am a, I am a talker, uh, but I did retire in uh, early retirement of June of 2018, uh, thinking I would travel the world, spend more time with family and friends, do all those things I, you know, I wanted to do, and then my journey began in December of 2018. Um, so, and how it started really, it was a Sunday, and you know, I was at home, and uh, I started, I was having uh, back pain, like upper back pain between my shoulder blades. And I thought to myself, well, you know, it's, I'm just sleeping funny or something like that, right? And then I started getting this itching all over, like uncontrollable itching. I thought, oh, <clears throat> that's not good. Um, and then when I went to the bathroom, my urine was darker than normal. And my bowel movements were kind of loose and fatty and gray. And those four things combined, I thought to myself, Something is not right, you know. 
So um, I thought I've got to call my general practitioner the next morning and get an appointment right away. Uh, but in the meantime, of course, I went to Dr. Google, put in my symptoms to try to figure out, you know, what it could be. <clears throat> and at that point, I thought it was pancreatitis. Now, keep in mind, I lost my mother to pancreatic cancer 30 years before. She was the same age as I was, right? So that was kind of in the back of my mind, but it, it, it didn't obsess me, right? I just thought it was something milder. So that was a Sunday. The Monday I went to see my GP. Um, we went through all the symptoms again. He actually thought it was hep C, hepatitis C, perhaps. So we ordered blood work right away. Now, this is a fast story. So people say that the healthcare system in various countries is slow. That was not the case with me, fortunately. So Monday I saw my general practitioner. He ordered the lab work. I had the lab work done the next day. That was the Tuesday. Uh, it came back very quickly. The doctor called me right away, probably hours after, and said, it doesn't look good. They're your bilirubin, et cetera, other things are unusually high, um, so we need to do an ultrasound. So I said, fine. So they said, you'll you know, get an ultrasound at your local hospital here. It's nice and close. I said, when is that? And they said, a week. And I said, this is when my self-advocacy kicked in high gear. I said, no, I'm not waiting a week. So I went online, found a clinic close by, and fortunately, they had just got a cancellation for 7-3 the next morning. So I go and have my ultrasound done. Same kind of thing. My GP calls me back hours later and says, there's some mass there. It doesn't look good. They're recommending a CT scan. So I said, perfect. When's that going to happen? They said, we've contacted. Again, they were being very proactive. They, they uh, contact the leading cancer center here in, in uh in Hamilton, close to me, Jurovinsky Cancer Center and Hospital, and they got a hold of one of the top surgeons that does Whipples and procedures like that for a living. He called me personally. He said, I'm going to get you a CT scan as soon as possible. So we had one done on the Saturday. It indicated there was a mass on my uh, head of my pancreas, and at that point, he said, you're starting to go a little jaundice. So we had the CT scan. Uh, so then that Saturday, Monday, I had an ERCP done, so they put a stent in there, and that was very smooth. I was in and out in an hour with no complications. And then he said, okay, we're going to have to do this Whipple procedure. He explained it to me in, in grueling detail. I said, okay. He said, enjoy your Christmas. We'll see you in January. He's looking for OR time in January, the backup from Christmas. He said, I can't find it. So he said, but I don't know how he did this, his magic. He said, I found nine hours of OR time for this Friday. <laughs> no, this is still in said, December, though? Yeah, this is all within less than two weeks. Wow. Right from the Sunday to my symptoms, that whole week, everything went day by day by day. Now this is the, the Tuesday after the ERCP. He says, you're going to come in in three days. You're going to do the pre-op tomorrow, uh, go to pre-op tomorrow, get all your certain tests done, talk to the... Uh, anesthesiologist, get all that set up, make sure what you want to do, an epidural, all that done was in record time. And then I had my surgery on Friday, December 21st, 2018. So I'll pause there if you have any questions in terms of how we got from diagnosis to, to surgery. Well, yeah. So, uh, you know, a question that comes up often and in, in, in yeah. hindsight, it's always 2020, right? So yeah. You said you woke up on this day and you just had upper back pain and the itching and the, you know, the urine and the, and the funny bowel movements. Yeah. So there was nothing prior to that, though. Well, you know, when I looked at the other symptoms, they had said things like weight loss, right? So I went and, and, you know, I was eating smaller portions and I thought, well, I'm just getting old. I'm 61 years old. I thought, you know, you get older, you eat smaller portions. And you do, you know, you tend to lose weight. So and it wasn't significant, right? Mm -hmm. But I didn't have, I didn't have the jaundice. I didn't have uh, any kind of like um, pains in my abdomen, or I didn't have any of those other symptoms. It's fascinating. I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, data out there, you know, and there's some, you know, there's there's a healthy discussion, let's say, between the scientific community on, you know, how long these tumors you know, take to actually show themselves. And, and I've seen data uh -huh. where some scientists have said that, you know, it could be 10 years, you know, so you could have, uh, you know, cells in the, in the pancreas that are just slowly developing. And then until you show symptoms and are asymptomatic, it's 10 years uh -huh. you know, in the making. And then there's other thoughts that, you know, people have had scans, you know, and then, uh, you know, in these high risk groups and, you know, they, they've, they've seen scans where, 
you know, there's nothing. And then in six months there's, you know, full blown tumors and there's Mets, you know, so it's, it's fascinating to me, you know, and, and I think this goes back to the science, like we just don't know enough. Right. And, and everyone, I, I will preface this as saying is, and, um, I did want to ask this, which I'll get to it. Everyone is so different and this is the complexity of this disease. But the question that I wanted to ask was at any time prior was genetic testing done? It was not done prior. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, I'm also a seven-year breast cancer survivor. Wow. Right? I've got that. Then it's the, the pancreatic cancer. Then my mother had died of pancreatic cancer. Her two brothers had colon cancer. Hmm. My first cousin, by blood, had ovarian cancer. So we were full of cancer. Cancer, yeah. Right? In the family. Now, I did, just to fast forward and to answer yeah. your question, they did do genetic testing. And? Right? So I did have it done. And despite that extensive history, it, everything came back negative. They checked 32 gene panels. That's a lot. Yeah. And I, but I know there's... Everything came back negative. So, there, there, but you know, the thing is, uh, it'd be interesting to get you back into genetic testing because um, if that was done back in 18, you know, there, there's things that are, that are happening... Uh, and this is a discussion that we have weekly with families because people will say some, we'll, we'll see similar stories, Sandy, where, you know, they have multiple family members, first line family members that have multiple cancers that, you know, put into a box, they, they would kind of light up as having some sort of genetic mutation. And then when the tests come back, there's just nothing that's found. And I think this is the fascinating piece with science. Well, one, one of the many fascinating things is we just don't know enough. And there's things that are being discovered. It seems like monthly, you know, with these genetic mutations that haven't yet been discovered. So it, it's, it, it raises the question, you know, if we know enough yet, right? Maybe we just don't well, know. I've got well, it. And then to add, yeah, to add to that, Dino, you know, in the pathology report and after I spoke to my surgeon, uh, it ends up that he said, you know, you have an unusually small pancreas. Kind hmm. of weird. And then they ended up, uh, when they got in there, my pancreas was a hot mess. It was calcified, atrophied. They had to take the entire thing out. And, uh, so, and they knew that was, I'd then be, instantly become type 3C diabetic. But he said to me, after he said, you know, you've had chronic pancreatitis probably for like 10 years. I said, so how on earth is that possible? I didn't have one symptom. Like that is a very, very painful disease. Very painful. Yeah. Right? I said, how is that possible? Like, <clears throat> I don't understand. I didn't understand it. But... It's fascinating. There's still a lot to learn. You know, there's still that lot that we don't know, which is the scary thing, but also the optimistic yeah. thing, I think for people, you know, diagnosed with the disease, because we, we still have to come a long way. There's a lot of hope there. So to get back, yeah. you had the Whipple on 12, 21, 18, and then. Well, well, it started off as a Whipple. Yep. It ended up being a total. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so they ended up removing, <clears throat> it was eight and a half hour surgery. They took out my entire uh, pancreas, my spleen, my gallbladder, my common bile duct, portions of my small intestine. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, it was then when they removed the pancreas, they removed uh, 23 lymph nodes and seven of them were positive. So my diagnosis, but I, I wasn't, uh, I had clean margins hmm. and there was no artery or blood vessel or anything like that involvement. So, <clears throat> and people, ask your surgeon up front, how many of these procedures have you done successfully? Like, I looked him in the eye and said, how many have you done? He's like, well, about 250, 275. Had he said five, I would have turned around and found another surgeon. <laughs> so <clears throat> they made the decision to uh, remove all of those, right? And like I said, because I was resectable, because people say, why didn't you have chemo first, right? Mm -hmm. Well, he said, it's my opinion, and I agreed with him. If you can get in there, the faster the better and get it out, yeah. right? And maybe the chemo won't work for you. And I was completely resectable. That was reviewed by the tumor board and everybody else. So that's why we went, uh, we went ahead with the surgery first. And it was wildly successful. I had zero complications. Zero. Then and today, 15 months later, nothing. So you come out of this procedure going yep. in as a Whipple, but they take everything out. And then did you have yep. to do chemo post? Oh, yes, Absolutely. 
Yep. I did 12 rounds of Fulfurinox. Fulfurinox, yeah. Yeah, so every two weeks, but a five-hour um, infusion time. And, and that, I, again, I, I've been so blessed. My doctors call me my mir- the miracle baby. I had no, no complications. I had oh. no nausea, no vomiting, no diarrhea, no weight loss, no pain. Now, I did have a little trick. I did have IV hydration after each infusion mm-hmm. for three days, three hours each. And home care would come and hook me up. And then once I got the hang of it, they put it in my fanny pack along with my uh, chemo pump. Yeah. So I could do, go do my shopping and everything else, right? Uh, now, the only symptom I did get, side effect rather, was um, neuropathy in my fingers and toes. But it wasn't pain. It was just like tingling and numbness. And that since uh, has gone away and subsided, actually without medication. So, yeah, I was in the ICU for two days. Um, Then I was in the ward for probably another eight, nine days. He said, once your pain is under control, you're eating all those sorts of things, we'll send you home. Uh, I was able to eat solid food. Probably, well, I walked, first of all, you have to walk every single day. Yeah. So even in the ICU... The, the day after surgery, I'm dangling my feet on the bed, and they said, well, can you get in this recliner? I said, yeah. I even did a few laps around my bed, and every day since then, I walked consistently. And I was able to eat solid food probably about four days in. Wow. And I went home with uh, no drains, no feeding tubes. I did have a mild drain in my abdomen, a small one, but that was removed probably around day seven. And then I was released on New Year's Day. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. and so after the twelve rounds of Flufornox, you were given yeah. kind of a no evidence of disease. Yeah, every um, was it every three months? Three halfway months. through chemo, yeah. They, yeah, halfway through chemo, they did the test, and I was uh, I was fine. Um, it was Ned. It was no evidence of disease. And then when we finished it. And people always ask about your CA199 tumor marker. Mm-hmm. And you know, according to my oncologist, it's not 100% reliable, right? Because things like the chemo or inflammation or infection can you know, skew it. He said, we really rely on the scans. So because halfway through chemo, my, uh, my CA199 was 126, which is suspect of a tumor or mm-hmm. uh, occurrence, right? Yet the CT scan showed NED. And then when we finished the chemo and we did another... Uh, round of uh, the test and uh, the CAT scan, and it had gone down to 13, and I was still net. Wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, now they monitor me. I still go every three months for the blood work and the meetings with my, uh, and my surgeon, by the way, is still very much involved, so I also see him every three months, and I see them again in uh, the end of May. So not having a pancreas, though, you must have to be on, uh, well, first of all, you become a diabetic, correct? Yes. Were you, you weren't diabetic, you didn't have any health issues. I mean, I know you said you had breast cancer before, but um, seven years ago, you didn't have any major health issues before. You weren't diabetic before you were diagnosed. Is that correct? Oh, no, I I had nothing. I wasn't diabetic. I wasn't overweight. I wasn't on any medications besides vitamins. Yeah. Nothing. So from the removal of the pancreas, you become an automatic diabetic. Um, And anything else uh, from kind of the surgery and, you know, the treatment that was post that you didn't have prior? Uh, Well, because my pancreas was gone and my spleen was gone, so I did, with with your spleen being gone and now with this (laughs) COVID-19, 99 is pretty dangerous, but... So I did have all my vaccinations at the hospital, and then subsequently I had them eight weeks later, and then I get them again in, in, uh, in five years, and I did have my flu shot. Um, and then the diabetes, type 3C is very, very um, brittle. Right? Yeah, brittle so, diabetic, yeah. Yeah, so when they removed my pancreas, I not only don't produce insulin anymore, I don't produce glucocon, I don't produce digestive enzymes. So honestly, right in the hospital, the endocrinologist came to see me. And they were teaching me how to how to finger prick and how to check my blood glucose and give myself injections. Here I am mm-hmm. recovering from a nine hour major surgery, right? And I'm <laughs> trying to take this in, on yeah. the spot. <laughs> um, but then th- that's the really tough side. Like I would say, the surgery and the chemotherapy, you know, I went through so well. It's living with this type of diabetes daily. That's really a full time job, you know. You know, but but you know, I've I've got it. My A one C is perfect. Uh, I count carbohydrates with every single meal. I take the appropriate insulin. 
I'm probably shortly going to move to the Dexcom and a pump to make it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mentioned it. I mean, look, if you look at the consequences, yeah. they had to do it. No, no. And no. I, I think the, the pros and cons, I mean, you know, from people that we've talked to, you know, that's a, that's a W, right? You know, being able not to uh, have to go in and, and take chemotherapy and, and, and battle pancreatic cancer. I think a lot of people take that trade off, right, of, of being a diabetic and having to, you know, you got to do these things, but, you know, you're, you're cancer free, which is, which is the key here. So with being the, the brittle diabetic, and I just want to talk about this for a second, do you have to take now and, and not having a pancreas, do you have to also incorporate digestive enzymes as well? Because eating is totally different, right? Yeah, so my, my daily routine is in, and I take my long-lasting insulin in in the morning mm-hmm. because I find I, could, I go to bed at different times at night. It wasn't consistent, but I always get up the same time in the morning. My end did that. So I wake up in the morning. I check my glucose again. <clears throat> I take my long-lasting, and I don't take a lot. I mean, you would think with no pancreas, I would take a ton of insulin, a ton of digestive enzymes, right? I don't. I only take like 11 units of long-lasting First thing in the morning, and I take my PPI. So you know what the PPI is to prevent stomach ulcers and, and, and uh, stomach acids, right? So I take those, right? Then I wait my half hour, <clears throat> have my coffee, check my uh, sugar again, um, and then I decide what I'm having for breakfast. I count my net carbs. Um, I take the appropriate insulin, and I do that routine three times a day with all my meals. So fortunately, of with everything I've gone through, the only meds I'm on is my insulin, my Creon digestive enzymes, and my PPI. That's it. That's it. Wow. Are you still taking vitamins or anything that? Uh, to oh supplement? yeah, I do. Yeah, I take a. Yeah, I also met with a. Um, I met with a naturopath along the way, and quite frankly, even though he specialized in cancer patients, he was re- recommending things that were just off limits, like you know high-dose vitamin C infusions. I said, my oncologist won't allow that, right? Yeah. Uh, but I did see a nutritionist who happened to be a pharmacist for, uh, for 35 years, and he reviewed all my prescription medications, and he was very well aware of all the contradictions, the interactions. So he looked at all that and said, okay, based on this, and now that you're off chemo, so he, he gave me a whole list of, uh, I take a multivitamin, I take omega-3, I take... Um, uh, lots of vitamin D. I take 5,000 units of vitamin D. I, I have a list of all those things. So I, I'm taking more vitamins and supplements than I am medications, which is good. And <clears throat> so this, these vitamins and everything, this is a new routine given what, what has transpired over the last two years. This wasn't anything that you did prior to. I know you said you took vitamins prior to, but not to this degree. No, not, not to the extent I do now. Yep. And a lot of that is to kind of bring your immune system back and things like that, right? So, yeah. So we just went through this whole narrative and this story of this whole thing. And, you know, for audience listening at home, this is a lot, but I got to ask you this question, how has your life changed? And, and beyond the, 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 the stuff we just talked about, right? I mean, you went from retiring in June, which people, you know, when they retire, they look forward to spending the rest of their life, you know, doing fun and enjoyable things, whatever that may be. For some people that's traveling, for other people, it might be, you know, gardening, it might be spending time with a loved one, you know, reading books, just not going to work nine to five every day, punching a clock. So going through all this, how has life changed for you now? If today, compared to maybe, you know, June 1st of 2018? Well, not today, because today I'm in self-isolation. Well, yeah, yeah, well, you know what I mean, yeah. I mean, it, beyond beyond what has transpired over here, you know, over the last month, let's say. So if we had to even back up to, you know, the beginning of the year, you know, and compare that to prior to being diagnosed in that, that uh you know, December of, uh, of 18, you know, how, how, if we compared, you know, November of 18 to January of 2000, you know, how has life changed for you beyond the obvious of, you know, having to go through the surgery and the treatments and everything? Well, but, you know, as I said earlier, if it wasn't for the diabetes, I had come through the surgery and the chemo so well, I was back to normal. Like I was literally living my life exactly the same as before. 
doing all the same activities, all those, like, everything was exactly the same, as if, as if I hadn't gone through it. It's just the, the diabetes that is lifelong, like I am, maybe I'm a little too obsessive, but, you know, this notion of counting net carbs maniacally, right, and, yeah. and checking your blood sugars every hour, <clears throat> and all those sorts of things, because I don't want to get those, and I'm also, um, uh, I have hypo-unawareness, right, so I don't get the symptoms, you know, that I'm about to crash, which is very dangerous, right? So it's, it's that kind of stuff that keeps me up at night now. As far as the surgery and the chemo and all that, that I just consider behind me. I've come through it. It's just the diabetes that's changed kind of my day-to-day. So right? you, you haven't had any diabetic episodes, and I know for some people, uh, you know, we've had patients on and, you know, that become these uh, brittle diabetics, and they, they've had a real challenge. I mean, this is not easy to, to manage, and I think everyone is a little bit different lifestyle-wise, and, you know, some people travel still or whatever whatever their their professional jobs may be as they, as they battle, you know, this thing called pancreatic cancer. But so you, you haven't had any issues in terms of you know, dealing with the diabetes other than really being on top of counting those carbs so that you don't have those issues. Uh, yeah, but I still get the highs and lows, right? Because yeah. don't forget, other things influence it. Like right now with this uh, this virus, people are, are obviously stressed, right? Yeah. And I've noticed in these last two weeks, my blood sugars are higher than normal. And, right. and I've done the same thing, Right. It's just things like stress. I have to go for a walk every morning. I have to put that in my little mon. You have to, like, it's, you have to be pretty, pretty um, strict, right, in order to do it <clears throat> successfully. But and like, it's and my diet didn't change that much, right? I I still follow a, largely a Mediterranean diet. I stay mm-hmm. away from greasy, fatty foods, lots of protein, all those sorts of things. Did you? Let me ask this question, and I just want to make sure I phrase this right. Before you were diagnosed, were you pretty active? Um, you just yeah. mentioned walking, and so would you? Would yeah. you go to the gym or go for walks on like a routine basis? Yeah, we go for walks. Go to uh, we go for Aquafit. Yeah, right. Which I couldn't go when I had my pick line and my my uh, chemo pump and all that, so that went on hold. But there's also. Um, an organization here in Canada called Wellspring that uh, is focused on helping people with cancer of all cancers. Uh, and they have an exercise program that is customized for the individual based on the type of cancer you have. So I went there when I had the breast cancer, and then I went back there when I had the pancreatic cancer. And they were fabulous. So they put a routine together for you that's a combination of cardio and strength. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that was very, very beneficial. So you didn't change your routine much in terms of other than what you, you know, was safe and prudent, you know, being in the water with the pick line and stuff like that. But in terms of like working out and staying active, like that didn't change much through all of this. Oh, I wasn't a big gym rat to begin with. Right. Yeah. So you still yeah. maintain the active lifestyle, I guess is what I'm trying to yeah. say. Yeah. Now, I also am a member of, uh, I joined a, a local support group for type 1 diabetics, and I, to your point earlier, some of these have been diabetic, folks have been diabetic for, you know, 20, 30 years, so there's lots of really good kind of lessons learned there Then we meet uh, once a month, and I'm also a member of uh, a lot of online support groups as well, so we can kind of help each other, and, uh, and actually my surgeon called me, he was about to release one of his patients that had a Whipple, and he said, I think she's going to little, need a little you know, help and inspiration. Would you mind mentoring her? So I just spoke to her yesterday to see how she's doing. And I go visit, I would go visit her kind of once a week and answer any questions she had as kind of someone that's gone through something similar. So that gives me great gratification. I love doing that. That's awesome. That's awesome. So were you, at, I mean, you know, uh, I, I got to ask the question. You mentioned, you know, online yeah. support groups. Were you, are you, pretty active or were active uh, prior to or during this process on social media at all, by any chance? <clears throat> not before I had the surgery, right? Not, not before. I, mean, I was online, but I wasn't yeah. active you know, on Facebook. But it was my friend actually in the States who one of her neighbors <clears throat> were not. And, and I was very open and transparent. I sent out an email to everyone in terms of what my diagnosis was and steps and 
So a lot of people reached back, obviously, and one said, oh, my neighbor had a Whipple, and here's an online group. Go check it out. So I'm now on probably six groups now, Dino, two for pancreatic cancer, two for Whipple, one for type 1 diabetics in Canada, and one for type 2 C diabetics worldwide. Um, And I'm very active on those, very active. Well, I find like, you know, from talking to so many survivors that the online groups are are really helpful, um, you know, because I think it's a way... As we, when we open the podcast here, we talk about, you know, the reach that we have, you know, and that people have the ability to connect throughout the world and we're together in this, right? And, and I think cancer can be something that becomes very lonely in that you're by yourself and, you know, in your house or at the cancer center fighting this by yourself. And the one thing we do know is that there's strength in numbers, right? And with this disease, as serious and as devastating as a diagnosis can be it's powerful to connect with people especially if people have gone through it right um the the survivors that are out there and there are a lot of survivors and it's so inspiring to hear that there's all these groups going on out there that you know connect these survivors and people share their stories and share their experiences which is just really really great and we just need more of that um clearly around the world Question for you, and I want to go back a bit. You mentioned, you know, you you had breast cancer seven years ago. Do you think that experience, because you, you speak very confidently of what you did, and, and naturally you said you're A-type and you wanted to get this done, but I've got to ask this question, that, that experience that you had with breast cancer, do you think that prepared you for this in some way? Absolutely. I did, I still to this day have not shed a tear. And I'm being perfectly honest with you. With pancreatic cancer or both? Pardon me? With both or with just pancreatic? Uh, I don't, because with the breast cancer, they caught it fairly early. It wasn't uh, as bad as the pancreatic diagnosis, right? But, uh, uh, But that, I knew exactly the drill. Right, I knew the questions to ask of the various doctors, whether it's the surgeon, the oncologist, the radiologist, the nutritionist. I knew all that kind of stuff. Right, was fortunate, and uh, in my family and circle of friends, many, many of them are in the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. Many of them. Okay. In fact, my surgeon, I knew we knew his nurse personally, so I knew how good he was. And same with the oncologist. And my sister-in-law's been in the healthcare field for 30 years now. So I had all that. So that, that, that in-person support structure too was very valuable. But yeah, having that experience with breast cancer and uh, really helped me out with this, like really helped me out. I just knew it was that on steroids. I just had to be much more diligent and quick in terms of, uh, you know, getting all the tests and appointments and things all scheduled very, very quickly. Now, you just mentioned something about friends and family. How important was that going through this? Oh, my God. I mean, I'm single and I don't have kids. Uh, I have one sibling, my brother, Uh and... uh, and his wife, Michelle, so George and Michelle, and my niece, right? Yeah. But, and they were every step of the way. I mean, they took me to the appointments. They came to the doctor's appointments. They helped with the research. They cared for me after the uh, surgery and the chemo. I stayed at their house. They cooked the healthy meals. They were maniacal about sending my <clears throat> blood sugar results to the endo to get almost day-by-day advice on how to adjust my insulin. I mean, they were like my rocks without question. And then I've got my friends and my cousins. They would text me every day. They'd say, because it was critical that I, I managed to gain all my weight back after surgery. I lost about 25 pounds, even during chemo. They would call me or my brother or sister-in-law. What do you think she'll want to eat today? We were Greek, right? They'd make stuffed peppers. They'd make these pasta. They'd make all these different dishes, right? <clears throat> and they would, like, unbelievable support. Unbelievable support. Come visit me all the time. We go for walks. We do this. We go shopping. We go for breakfast. Anything. It was unbelievable. Well, I think it's so important. I mean, I've always said you got to have, uh, you know, a village around you to to help people fight this. And not everyone has, you know, uh, all the resources that maybe some families have. I think you just mentioned you're Greek, and I, I, you know, coming from an Italian family, you know, I think the uh, the European 
you know, ethnicities, you know, tend to congregate. <laughs> and sometimes that's a good, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing, right? Like, uh, I just remember when my dad was doing chemo, you know, it was always a party, uh, at the chemo, uh, pods, you know, when he was getting infusion because, you know, there were cousins, relatives, friends, um, you know, there's just, sometimes we had to tell people to just, you know, not come today, or we had to have a list of who was coming, which is, you know, which is great. Um, you know, but then there's other folks that just don't have that, you know, and, and, and so, and why I bring this up is, you know, we get this often, we get this often, um, you know, from people that, you know, hear about someone that they're close to that gets diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And the question is, Sandy, in your experience, and, and this is kind of a loaded question and, and probably going to be a hard one for you, just given what you just told us, but what do you think is the best thing that friends and, and family can do for people? And, and maybe you can give us one or two examples um, that you experienced, because I think a lot of times, you know, and we've talked about this on the podcast often, because I think people feel like they hear about a coworker or they hear about a neighbor or they hear about a really good friend, you know, someone that they talk to regularly or someone they went to college with or high school that's diagnosed and, and they just don't know what to do. And I always like asking, you know, the survivors and the fighters what the best thing is to do, because I think it gives the audience really something tangible that we know has helped people that are going through that process. Well, you know, I think when they first hear, right, <clears throat> and knowing that I had lost my mom to pancreatic cancer, I know for a fact they were shell-shocked, right? Like, they were shell-shocked. They probably thought in their minds, okay, that's it. We're going to lose her. In, we lost her mom in four months. We're probably going to lose her in, in six months, right? So even some of the closest family and friends didn't reach out right away. They did electronically, right? So they would respond to an email or maybe a text. And I'm thinking to myself, no, I want to hear your voice, right? I want to hear your voice. So I proactively reached to some of those people and said, it's okay to talk. I'm okay to talk about it. I'm doing great, all the kind of stuff. So I think it was just that that helped. And then the floodgates opened. Then we would have the conversations and everybody felt comfortable about it. And I would give them constant updates to reassure them that I was doing well and and, you know, and you don't have to ask me what I want to eat. You know me, I'll eat anything. Just bring it over, <laughs> right? Or if you feel like going for a coffee, just text me and, you know, I'll go. So sometimes they wait for you to signal. Yeah. And we should, right? Embrace them and let them into your life. And uh, it, it, like you said, it takes a village. Yeah, it really does. And I, and I think the, you know, the, the other thing that we've heard a lot here for audience listening at home is just the sense of normalcy, right? You're, you're going through mm. this not normal situation and the more normal that you can create a situation or be in the situation for those folks, you know, brings them back out of the reality of what, and I'm not saying we make this fake facade, right? Like let's, let's stop this here for a second. Like we're not saying like, you know, I think just be normal, you know, like people who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer doesn't change them. They, they have this, no. you know, it, it's, you can still talk about sports. You can still talk about Aunt Helen. Um, you know, maybe you don't want to like, you know, let go of all your feelings and, and, you know, put your, put, put your drama on their plate, but, you know, you can talk about, you know, things that you normally would with them versus trying to act differently or do something that's ultra special. I think the simplest things I've heard, you know, like you said, um, you know, are, are just really, really super impactful and, and probably the most important things that people can do for those folks battling. Well, and then, you know, once I was feeling better, <clears throat> I hosted um, uh, Thanksgiving. Or not Thanksgiving. Well, I hosted Thanksgiving and Christmas, but I also I love Halloween, right, Dino? Yeah. So uh, I hosted a, a big Halloween party for my family and friends, and guess who I dressed up as? Uh, I'm going to say the... The, the surgeon, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the, the, the notorious RBG. Oh, RBG, yeah, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's thought, so awesome. If that woman can survive four times, I can certainly survive two. That's so and, awesome. And we had a blast, right? And, and it was just, like, to your point, it was just like normal. That's so awesome. Just like normal. That's just so like awesome. Just like the Halloween the year before. 
I love it. I love it. I love it. That's a great one. And I just recently watched her. Uh, there was a do- there's a great documentary on her that's uh, floating around. Oh, I around. saw it. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, on Netflix. And what an inspiration for this community, you know, and and what she's been able to do, you know, not only for the cancer community but for the women's rights movement, and and just been such a positive influence in the world. And we we certainly need more of that um, as we go through the this, you know, COVID nineteen you know, outbreak. Um, we've got to dig deep and look for more stories like that to keep reminding us of all the good that's happening in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I got another question here for you. I got two more questions for you. Sure. Faith. Has faith been a, a part of your life and, and how does that come into this whole discussion? Well, it, it hasn't. I mean, I, you said you're a Greek, I, so I, I got to imagine you're maybe Greek Orthodox or maybe not. Or well, Yeah, I'm Greek Orthodox, and I'll be 100% honest. I, I don't go to church. I do believe there is a yeah. God up there that is looking over us, right? But <clears throat> I just, and I do get some strength from that, but I think it's more the the positivity, right? It's, it's that kind of, and, and gratitude, like just show gratitude. And it will, you know, that's, that's, that's what got me through it. But everyone's prayers absolutely helped. Absolutely helped with our question. So I, I've got a question for you that just came up. And in, in interviewing, you know, so many survivors on this podcast, I don't have the scientific data but I, on this exactly. But what I do see and what I can say is there's this arc that I see the survivors go through and and something fascinating about your story, you know, about being a breast cancer survivor. And then, you know, seven years later getting this diagnosis and just attacking this thing, you know, like it's your job and it's a mission, you know, so driven. But if we back up even further, Sandy, Mm -hmm. I know you said you were, when we started the podcast, you said you're a talker, you work for IBM, you were a type, so is there a point in life that you can even look back, you know, maybe to when you were a little kid and growing up that kind of was like a defining moment and that you can look back and kind of prepared you for this? Because and the reason why I bring this up is, you know, we've had people on the podcast and, and I always use this example because it's probably the most poignant one. But, you know, we had a firefighter on the podcast who was going through this. And, you know, being in the fire service industry, he knew every day he left his house, he, he might not come home. Mm-hmm. And he always said that, you know, um, you know, he, he never, you know, with his wife and his kids, like he, he didn't, you know, leave anything to doubt, you know, because of what his career was. You know, and he was a career fireman for 30 years and then he gets diagnosed with this pancreatic cancer and for him, life didn't change. And, you know, he was a PT instructor, so he's in really good shape, you know, and, and so he was ready for this battle. And, and that's just one example. And there's so many stories. We had we had a young lady on um, that has not aired yet that, you know, had almost a, a tragic, you know, had this tragic accident in high school that, you know, she came inches from dying, mm-hmm. you know, and it just prepared her mentally and physically for this battle, and, and so I, not to use like this as a conspiracy, but I, I, I would say that like, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, people, you know, go through, if you go through a series of events in your life, you're going to have this happen. Right. But, it, but it is a very interesting thing. Like is if you dig really deep and I guess I can say from my point of view, like by asking certain questions, you know, with, with survivors that we've had on the podcast, that there's this arc that you find that, you know, people went through these life experiences early on in their life that prepared them to beat this thing and to fight this thing. And, and if they didn't go through those experiences, maybe the, the narrative would be different. So that I know that's kind of a, a lot and it's a little bit of a loaded question, but if you look back, you know, in your childhood, like you were, you said you were a type A and, you know, you, you were, you know, whether it was your career or something or something you experienced as a child to just deal with adversity in a way that when this adversity hit, you just dealt with it the way you did. And that's always the way you've dealt with that. Well, so I think you've asked a very important question and it's, uh, 
it's an emotional one. So forgive me. Um, what got me here? I lost my mother to pancreatic cancer. I lost my father to heart disease. I had to make those decisions on their treatment, life and death decisions. Okay, that was 30 years ago. Then we lost our seven-year-old niece, my brother and sister-in-law's daughter. Lost her when she was seven, unexpectedly. And they were obviously completely devastated, just crushed. So, and they say to me now, you know, 13 years whatever later, you know, how did you put your IBM hat on and just take charge from making sure all the things were done to before the service to this, to that, to the, all the arrangements? How did you do that? I said, I don't know, but it's those experiences, you know, that, you know, enabled me to take charge when it came to the breast cancer and then take further charge when it came to pancreatic, right? So those were my life lessons, sir. And well, they taught me a lot. It's powerful stuff because I think as we go through those tragic times, we don't realize the lessons that are being taught and the lessons that we are learning, right? And hindsight, as I said before, is... And you is, don't realize the strength you have. No, no. Like, you, like, where does it come from? You just, you put your working hat on and you get things done and you, are you crying at night? Sure you will, right? But you're there to, to, to be the leader of the family, to get these things done, to comfort them, to take all the things off their plate that you can, right? So... It's powerful stuff. And I think that's why I was so proactive with my own, right? Tons of self-advocacy. I didn't talk, take no for an answer from anybody. Well, but at the same time, embrace that village, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, that's such an important lesson because I think here in the United States and across the world, I'm sure people like, you know, listen to whatever the doctor says and they don't say anything back. And, and I've always said, you've got to be your biggest self-advocate. Like no one's going to advocate for you. Like you think the doctor's going to, you know, going to, going to be your biggest self-advocate. He should be. And I'm not saying that doctors are going to do anything illegal or wrong, but if you don't ask, they don't give you right. So like you have to, you have to have the gumption to speak up. And if something doesn't feel right, if your gut's not telling you, that, hey, this this doesn't feel right, then you got to ask the questions until you feel right, right? And that that's really the critical message here. And I appreciate it. And I didn't mean to, you know, I, we we never, our, our purpose here is never to make anyone upset, but I, I think it's a very interesting... No, it was, it was the perfect... No, no, Dino, please don't. It, it was the perfect question to ask, yeah. right? No, I'm totally fine. And, and it's so powerful to hear, Sandy, because I think that's something that, you know, as we go through what we're going through here today um, in our world that, you know, we have to learn from this lesson and we have to, you know, become stronger and we will become stronger similar to how families have experienced, you know, tragic death and, and tragic things that happen in their lives, you know, to move forward. Sometimes you have to go backwards a couple steps and, but you have to learn from that and become stronger. My last, yeah. my last question for you here. I promise. And and we got one more, but that's the easy one. And this is probably the hardest one. We always say the, the hardest. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you might be prepared for this. And there's no right or wrong answer to this. And, and this is somewhat of a loaded question. But what is your definition of pancreatic cancer? How do you define it? Oof. You know, I would say the old, um, well, first of all, uh, never ever give up, right? That's our motto. And then wage hope, but, and there's always that hope, right? You know, yeah. but it's the waging part. Like we need more execution, more follow through, more commitment, more research. There is not enough. So plenty of hope. Let's focus on the wage and getting things done to help us and our uh, caregivers. I love it. I love it. So for our listeners at home, that have listened to this podcast, Sandy, and they just mm. want to connect with you. Maybe someone out there might be going through what you were going through back in December of 08 and through, you know, maybe someone has had their, their pancreas removed and, and now is a brittle diabetic and, and just can't figure out, you know, how to, how to deal with this. What's the best way for our audience to connect with you? If you could share that with our audience, is it via email? I know you mentioned some, some online groups. I know, 
prior to you have uh, when we, how we connected you you've done some stuff from pancreatic cancer Canada which is a partner of ours in the World Pancreatic Cancer Coalition great group out of Canada um, so what's the best way if someone wanted to connect with you uh, if they write well my story is on pancreatic Canada's website it's spotlight spotlight on their main site I'm also doing a story with Let's Win, Dino, and I'll do this podcast with you. Uh, But I would say Facebook. So it's just as my name is spelled. There's no uh, secret name. It's Sandy Robus on Facebook. You can friend me there. Awesome. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you for being an advocate, sharing your story, and just for our audience listening at home. Just be your biggest self-advocate. I've been taking notes this whole time and, and I've written that a couple of times here just from you know hearing you tell your story and, and just how you self-advocated for yourself, whether it was you know pushing the doctor to get you in right away, um, you know, learning you know all the, the ins and outs of being a brittle diabetic and continuing to be you know your biggest advocate. So from all of us here at Project Purple, thank you for giving us the opportunity to share your story. Thank you for bringing hope and awareness to this mission, which is super, super critical. And as we say here at the Project Purple Podcast, that's a wrap of another episode. If you like what you hear, please follow us, share this, and until next time, thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.